Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's peanut butter cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's peanut butter cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's that omelet that set off your smoke alarm, Allie Ward. And get your calendar ready. May 4th, 2022. World Carnivorous Plant Day. Did you know that? I didn't until I dove headfirst into the watery wonders and the spiky jaws of this episode. Plants that eat meat. What? What makes a carnivorous plant, you ask? That's a good question. So they have to capture, kill, and digest their prey and use the absorbed nutrients to grow. I know you're thinking carnivorous plant got it, Venus flytraps. And what else? So much. There are pitfall traps like pitcher plants. There are sticky flypaper traps. There's bladder traps, which sound painful. They're like insect vacuums. There's lobster pot traps that have spikes you can't pass back through if you're a bug. Oh, this is a good one. So in the northern hemisphere, carnivorous plants tend to flower from May to July. So just get ready for a new obsession to bloom. But first, I'm obsessed with you. Thank you to everyone at patreon.com slash ologies for supporting the show since before it was even born. You can join for as little as a dollar a month. And thank you to everyone who leaves a review. And I read them all like this still steaming one from Kitty Wav, who said, the only podcast I had while living on a cruise ship. Five out of five stars for the podcast, not the cruise ship. That was like a two out of five. Thank you, Kitty Wav. We're glad to have you back. Okay. Carnivorous phytobiology. Flesh-eating plants. They exist. They're all over the place. And this ologist has been doing really great outreach out of her soggy field. And she did an undergrad in biology, cum laude, from University of Florida, and is now finishing a master's at Texas Christian University and graduates in May very, very soon with a thesis titled The Effects of Nutrients and Pollen Quality on the Reproduction of Carnivorous Plants. And this ology, this episode, it covers so many ologies in one, phytology, conservation ecology, bogology, Plus, the chemistry of digestion, the physics of trap mechanisms, there's symbiosis, there's tricky things, there's tattoos, there's pop cultural lore, historical gossip, death and snacks and survival and flowers. So tuck in your bibs. Get ready for a carnivorous phytobiologist, Helia Eastburn. Are you there? Hello? Can you hear me? This is some real fumble core.
Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> We're here. I know. Um, I mean, it's been months of Twitter back and forth. We're like, yes. let's get this on the books. Yes. Let's get this. And then, you know, COVID the holidays, the holidays, Omicron, a concussion on my part. (laughs) Nothing like a little head trauma to Uh, push back all of your intended time. (laughs) Um, First thing I'm going to have you do, can you say your first and last name and your pronouns? Yeah, my name is Holia Eastburn. My pronouns are she, her. Sweet. Plants that eat animals. The tables are turned. Let's get right into it. Do you have to get in tight with the Ento community to be like, hey, what's the scoop on bugs, man? Yeah. So actually, one of the reasons why I got into carnivorous plants was because I was taking an entomology class during my undergrad. And I've been growing carnivorous plants as a hobby and just kind of like, oh, these are cool. Like they look really fun and like they're easy to grow. And then when I took an entomology class, I was like, Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I have to like reassess these plants and look at their relationships. There's so many different things going on. They're eating bugs, but they also need bugs to pollinate them. And then there's bugs interacting with them, like just, you know, in the environment. And so my education in entomology actually helped enrich my understanding of these plants. It's like understanding gardening before you understand cooking, kind of. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Only the bugs are the garden and the cooking is the plants that devour the flesh. Flip-flop. Everything's upside down. Let's get the big question out of the way. Okay. All right. How old were you when you saw Little Shop Horrors? Feed me Seymour. What effect did it have on your life? <laughs> or is that the most annoying question that a plant <laughs> biologist can get? Um, it's a very common one. Um, I yeah. know. I, that's why I had to ask it. Uh, I honestly don't know what age I was when I saw it. I was born in 86, so like, I think I was like a little before me. So I might have sure. seen it when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And then I recently, I think the most recent time I watched it was maybe like five years ago. And I was like, oh, this is like different than I thought this was. <laughs> it was like total like flash the past. Those. It's fun. It's a fun movie. Has anyone named any carnivorous plant species Audrey or Aubrey or Aubrey 2? I forget uh, what it was called, but I'm sure. Right now, there's like a million cultivars of Venus flytraps. People breed them with all these different looks and things like that. And so I'm sure there's an Audrey cultivar or something. Okay, so this aside is meaty. And I'm sorry, the rest are shorter. Did I spend two hours looking this up? Of course I did. Maybe three. I'm not in control. It's my brain. But first off, I found out plants that respond to touch are called sensitives. That's the word for them. And I love that. And the Venus flytrap was first called the flytrap sensitive until some naturalists in the mid-1700s were like, yo, come on, two halves of a shell, hmm? Kind of dewy, rimmed in hairs, sensitive to ye touch. <laughs> so these horny botanists named the flytrap after Venus, goddess of love. They were like, <laughs> and if you don't get it yet, common name for it back then, the tippity witchet which was not derived from any indigenous language, as previously assumed, but rather it was just straight up slang for a snatch. So let's continue to gossip. So the prominent Southern governor, Arthur Dobbs, who first described the flytrap and would send seeds around the country to fellow enthusiasts, including presidents, lapsed on his horticultural duties when he became a newlywed. And two fellow botanists talked shit in a letter and are quoted as saying, 
It is now in vain to write him for seeds or plants of the tippity-witchet. He has got one of his own to play with. Ew. The catch? He was 73, and his bride was 15. And even though they are said to have had a loving marriage based on letters they sent each other, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But Venus flytraps can live to the age of 20, so it is possible that he had plants older than his wife. What is my fucking point? That's a good question. Okay, so I was looking for cultivars named after Audrey II or after Little Shop of Horrors, and I stumbled into the open maw of a website called flytrapcare.com, and it listed all kinds of tweaks on the species. And there are cultivars named after the sunset, after a shell en français, uh, after the B-52s. There's one named after the titular alien, an alien. And they also have cultivars named Creeping Death, Polish Dracula, Bart Simpson, Kim Jong-il, and Butt Cheeks. But no Audrey too. But they do have one named Justina Davis. And I was like, who is that? Probably like a jazz singer I'd never heard of. Oh, no. Justina Davis was Dobbs' 15-year-old bride. Got it. Get it? Didn't need it. And I'm going to spare you the part where I researched species named after famous people and discovered a pair of researchers who named trilobites after 1980s goth bands. Yes, I emailed them. Okay, Little Shop of Horrors, getting back to it. It's a movie made the same year Halea was born, but it's based on a 1960 dark comedy by Roger Corman. But the idea was maybe poached from a sci-fi story about a man eating flour, which was itself inspired by another short story about an orchid collector who becomes a victim of his own hobby. But the 1986 film was a cultivar of a cultivar of a cultivar of another idea. So there you go. Speaking of history, did you start as a hobby and then did you decide, fuck, why not get a master's in this? Like, I love this. There's got to be more people studying this. Like, what came first? Yeah. So I grew up gardening and around plants and all of that. And I moved down to San Diego and I started dating someone and they were actually growing carnivorous plants and they introduced me to the hobby. And so we started collecting these plants together. And we helped actually found San Diego Carnivorous Plant Society that's still around today. And so we kind of gathered this community together with all these other really cool plant folks down there. And we started having meetings and did a show and sale once a year for, I did it for like three or four years. And then I graduated, got into working with insects for a while. Then I worked with trees for a while. And this whole time after I graduated, in my, my undergrad, I was thinking about getting a master's. I just didn't know what I wanted to spend so much time studying. I was just kind of like dabbling around, looking for advisors. And then I stumble upon this posting, and it's this advisor who I now working with asking for someone to come work on carnivorous plants. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that, like, I don't know, there was labs that were still working on this. I, I knew a few people that had been working on carnivorous plants. They were like way across the country or like places that were like really cold and I don't want to live there. And I was like, I can do Texas. This is cool. So like kind of on a whim, <laughs> I applied. The deadline was actually like the next day. So I was like, oh shit, I'm just going to like put this okay. in. Um, applied right away. And I, within a few months, they were like, I, I interviewed with the advisor. We clicked. And, and then, you know, Later that year, I was living here in Texas. So it was kind of a crazy whirlwind. Didn't intend really to study carnivorous plants. But again, like my curiosity for them has been a very long, long relationship. I guess it makes sense that I'm here now studying them. I feel like most, some people only have 
exposure to them as mm -hmm. cultivars and as like mm -hmm. hobbies and gardening. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where carnivorous plants exist because I'm in California, but what, what kind of habitats do they prefer? So carnivorous plants are incredibly diverse. And I think that's something that people often miss because they automatically go to Venus flytraps. But there's like tons of diversity within carnivorous plants and they're found on every continent um, except for Antarctica. Too cold, far too cold. So you can find them a lot of places. Where you're going to find them, though, is where there's a lot of water, where they're going to be waterlogged, where there's a lot of light and not a lot of nutrients. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why they developed or they evolved carnivorous traits. Mm -hmm. And so in California, we actually have a native species. It's a native species of pitcher plant, and it's up north near the border of Oregon in these kind of like rocky serpentine like ravines where water's just kind of rushing down to these rivers below and there's constantly water just kind of moving through the ground and watering these plants there's not a lot of trees out there and the soil itself doesn't have a ton of nutrients it's got volcanic origins so there's not a lot of nutrients there there's, there's carnivorous plants everywhere so that's where you find them in california the rest of the united states there's bogs and swamps that have carnivorous plants all over the south, and then up the eastern seaboard into Canada, actually, you can find pitcher plants. There's tropical pitcher plants that live in trees on tops of mountains. Like, they're everywhere. They're so diverse. I would think in bogs and stuff, there would be tons of nitrogen and things rotting. Mm -hmm. So what do plants need to thrive? They obviously need water. They yeah. need sunlight. They mm -hmm. need carbon dioxide. Uh -huh. But what is in miracle grow and what is in fertilizer and what what are the other things that plants need and why they are out there absolutely slaughtering bugs yeah yeah so carnivorous plants are really different from other plants where they need nitrogen phosphorus carbon to build all those structures reproduce do all the things that plants do in bog environments the soil is so waterlogged and anoxic there's no oxygen and so it actually slows down decomposition of all of the plant matter that's making up that bog and so that those nutrients are there but they're not readily available to the plants and so it actually is a nutrient poor situation and so these particular plants in these places have developed all of these different mechanisms to find other sources of nitrogen because they still need it. They still need phosphorus. They still need nitrogen. They're getting carbon from photosynthesis because they still photosynthesize. But everything else they have to get through insect capture. Dude. Yeah. Also, somehow the scariest plants out there. I, for some reason, carnivorous <laughs> plants are so mysterious and so like, wait a second. A plant fucking kills oh. bugs? Like, what yeah. else can it do? Was that part of your allure to them is like, wait, it's a this plant is anticidal was that part of why you love them yeah i think that was part of it i was just interested in how they even got insects near them like what what are they doing to draw these insects in because you'll get there's at the store you'll often see those they call like octopus plants or something and they have the sticky tendrils and i had a few of those for a while and you set them out in a nice sunny window and the next day they're like black with bugs <gasps> and you're like how how did that happen? Like, what are we doing? Right. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my curiosity around the, these plants is how are they doing what they're doing? And they have all of these really cool, like, lures that they use. 
some of them move, some of them don't. We use like UV attractants to bring in insects. And these mechanisms are different depending on if they want pollinators or prey because they still need to be pollinated. They need a reproduce. And so it's really fun to see the differences between those two things and like how these plants are kind of partition their strategies. So they need some bugs mm-hmm. to help carry their pollen. They mm-hmm. need others to die so that they can yes. break them down and take their <laughs> nitrogen and phosphorus. Yes. Do they ever get a BOGO? Do they ever do like a, a two for one on that? Ooh, um, that is really rare because most carnivorous plants will set their flowers really, really far away from their traps. So it's either really, really high above their traps um, tropical pitcher plants have these really long spikes that take the the flowers like a good few feet away from the actual pitchers themselves. Um, even Venus flytraps, they set their flowers really high above their traps. So anything that's cruising through the bog is just going to hit the flower and keep bouncing along. Mm-hmm. It's really not going to stick around and go lower to find anything. So that's one of their strategies. And also they offset the timing of when they put their flowers up and when they open up their traps. Oh, Yeah, so a lot of pitcher plants, a lot of carnivorous plants have a down season. They just take a break during the winter. They kind of go into dormancy. They stop producing active traps. And before they produce their next crop of pitcher plants or little fly traps in the spring, they'll pop up their flowers. Timing is everything. And so they get all their pollination done. And by the time those flowers are pollinated, then their, their traps start coming up and they start opening up and becoming active so they can catch their food for the rest of the season. And that's what they spend the rest of the season doing is just filling up on food. They're kind of like bears, I guess. <laughs> kind of filling up on, on food, store a bunch of it for the next season to get them through the winter, use some of it for that, for that season to like get beefy and, and grow a bunch. And then they go back to sleep again and have all winter. And for more on this, you can see the two-part Ursinology episode on bears. Plus, there's a carnivore ecology episode with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant. But yes, let bog death plants be your inspiration. You deserve a snack and a break. So a huge problem with carnivorous plant ecology and their conservation, and even like, I don't know, people knowing about them, is the fact that they're... Habitats have been significantly reduced and degraded. The amount of wetland habitat that we would have normally found these plants in has been reduced by like 85% worldwide. 85% of habitat is gone. And the reason that I, as a Californian, am shockingly ignorant about carnivorous plants is because the entire Central Valley of California used to be boggy as all get out. In the pre-gold rush 1850s, There were 4 million acres of bogs and wetlands in California, which are now drained and are home to almond orchards and alfalfa fields. The Venus flytrap is endemic to a really small area of North and South Carolina, but only 3% of its natural habitat remains. And biologists report that the local pine savannas have been swapped out for golf courses and parking lots, which, yes, is depressing. But people like Halea are on the job. So worldwide, we've gotten rid of all of these really cool wetland environments where these plants have to live. Like, this is the only place that they can live. And as that's happened, as we've reduced them in size and quality, they've kind of turned into these fragments, these islands. And we're not quite sure how they're spreading around their genetics, if they are at all. Because we need good genetic diversity long term to keep these populations healthy. 
and thriving. My project is looking at these little islands, this one particular island of plants here in East Texas, where the populations have been reduced significantly. And the nearest bog, Saracenia bog, to mine is about 10 to 15 miles away. And these plants are only pollinated by bumblebees. Mm. They're the sole pollinator as far as we know. I just want to tell you both, good luck. We're all counting on you. And bumblebees only forage about one, one, maybe two miles in their whole day. And so it's likely that bumblebees that are pollinating our bog aren't bringing in any pollen from any other bogs. And so essentially all the flowers within our bog are pollinating each other. And so by looking at the impacts of distance between pollen donor and pollen recipient, we can maybe get an idea of how big these bogs need to stay. Mm. If we're going to conserve them or if we're going to restore them or recreate them in any sort of natural habitat, like how big do these need to be? How much genetic diversity do we need for these bogs to be self-sustaining? Like they don't need to be maybe the huge, you know, uh, sprawling bogs that we used to have hundreds of years ago. We just need to have pockets of them. You know, wh what are the qualities of those pockets? How close do they need to be to the next bog? If that's, if that's a necessary thing. So if there aren't any nearby bogs, chances are that the bumblebees visiting the bogs' flowers come from that bog which means less genetic diversity. And she's also studying how the level of nutrients a plant has affects their offspring from a genetics level, because that can slip scientists some extra intel on what's happening in the local bog core scene. Are you ever tempted to like brand yourself as like, I'm a bog bitch? If I spent <laughs> most of my day like in bog looking for carnivorous plants, that'd be, that would feature heavily in my personal brand. <laughs> I never thought about bog bitch, but I love that. Maybe if I if I spent more time in in bogs, you know, I, I spent like all of last spring and summer, but I don't live near any bogs. I'm from California, and, and that's why I'm planning on going back to after I graduate. We don't really have bogs around California, <laughs> and so that's um, a good point. Yeah, so it's not really like my native habitat. <laughs> I'm more of a forest mountain girl, but man, I love a good bog. I like a good bog slog, and so um, <laughs> it's not really. Reverse, There's someone out there. I know. Someone I'm going to see who's out there using the hashtag bog bitch, and I am going to track them down, and we're going to see <laughs> what their, I'm going to see what their personal branding is like. Just a heads up, look up the hashtag bog bitch on Instagram, and it will lead you to Haleopedia. Yes, she did it. So enjoy pictures of her bog tromping past flutes of pitcher plants and doing microscopy on sticky little trickers. Speaking of variety... Can you walk me through some of the types of carnivorous plants? Because I feel like we mostly hear about Venus flytraps, but what are like pitcher plants and fly okay. paper? Like, what do they look like? Okay, so let's start with pitcher plants because those are the ones I'm working with. So pitcher plants, they have these big rhizome structures, for one. I know a lot of people wonder if they have like roots and flowers and things. Yeah, they're definitely like other plants, except their leaves have evolved to turn into like little tubes mm. and at the top of the tube is a lid and the lid doesn't close everyone thinks the lid closes on these ones they don't but around the lid and the lip of the tube there's all of this nectar and um, there's actually lines of nectar that extend up the tube to the mouth of the pitcher and these serve as guides for insects that are going to come into the lip of the tube 
it's kind of slippery and slick there. There's a bunch of dummy nectar and stuff like that. And they're going to slip inside and fall into the bottom of the tube. Well, after this, I shall think nothing of, fall- of falling downstairs. So what is at the bottom of that slippery trap tube? Nothing but death and microbes. It's delicious. At the bottom of the tube in Saracenia, most Saracenia, it's just a lot of fungus and bacteria and other insects actually collecting there. And they actually help digest all of the food. They break it down, and then the plant absorbs what it needs through its tissues of the future. Mm. So those are Saracenia. Those are the ones that you're going to find here in Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida. They're like beautiful, tall, gorgeous pictures. They can be up to like three or four feet tall, and they come in all different colors, red, white, yellow, pinks, purples. They're gorgeous. They're easy to grow, too. They're similar to roses where you can just, like, breed them together and get all these really beautiful, you know, colorful plants, and they and they grow fairly fast. Within a couple years, you can have them flowering, and then the pictures themselves are so showy. So those are Saracenia. There are some species of Saracenia up in eastern seaboard up into Canada, Saracenia purpurea. They make a liquid at the bottom of their pitchers. They're kind of short, these are little tubby pitchers, and they're filled with water. Mm-hmm. And they often get flooded, and so they will eat a lot of stuff that like little larvae or little frogs that live in them get eaten <gasps> by them sometimes. Yeah. What? And so they fill with water and enzymes that help them break down their food. And so those are a little different types of Saracenia. But those are our northern North American plants. Whoa. Is the yeah. frog in there for a while taking a dip and then it's like, holy shit, my skin's falling off? Or is it like immediate toxicity? The frog is like, I'm so thirsty. And then it's like, I'm dinner. Yeah. I'm not sure. I've seen some dead frogs in pictures and I've seen frogs living in pictures. Okay, I looked this up, and yes, some fragos fall to their watery deaths, but others treat Saracenia plants just like a pied-à-terre or like a West Village apartment paid for by a lover. I mean, just listen to Jacob on the YouTube channel for Saracenia Northwest. Frogs and pitcher plants actually have a beneficial relationship. Frogs will use a plant's pitcher for shelter. They will hang out along the inside of the pitcher, trying to keep cool during summer. Their feet have natural adhesive or suction cups that help them maneuver in and out of the pitchers. So really, they're not at all prey for pitcher plants. So it depends on the species. But if you see a dead one, something went wrong for the frog. But if you spot a live one, don't call 911. It knows what it's doing and loves it. And what are these love nests called, scientifically speaking? Phytotelmata. And that means plant pond, and it's any body of liquid contained within a plant, from pitcher plants to a watery hollow of a tree that serves as a nightclub for micro critters. Is the water getting there from rainfall, or is it taking in water from the roots and then reallocating it to its pitcher? So they make their own fluids. You can add fluids in, like sometimes I've been transporting plants and it spills out and like grab themselves, fill a little bit of distilled water. But then they, they add their own stuff in, too. Like that's, that's part of what they do. Wow. Yeah, it's like their little soup, their little digestive soup. It's 
<laughs> yeah. So those are our North American ones. Our Venus flytraps are found within a 90 square mile area in North Carolina. That's the only place in the whole world you can find them. And they're incredibly endangered for that reason because people like to pull them out of the ground for some reason kill them when you can just buy them at Home Depot. <laughs> no. But um, so that's where our Venus flytraps that are from. They're from here. We also have a bunch of sticky trap species. They're called uh, sundews, and those are so numerous. We have some species here. They're usually you can usually find them with the other carnivorous plants. So where you're going to look at, where you're going to find Cirrhosinia, you're probably going to find sundews, and you're probably going to find another family called bladderworts. They are fully aquatic carnivorous plants and they have these underwater traps which are super cool how does that work yeah so they're like these little pods and they have trigger hairs at the front of their mouth and a little microorganism little invertebrate in the water will swim by hit a hair and it triggers the opening of the pod and the pod creates like a little vacuum sucks it in and closes and Recent research done, I think, at CSU Fresno showed that the velocity of the water getting sucked into these traps is like 5,000 Gs. <gasps> it's ridiculously fast. And it's like the fastest moving predator, predator in quotes, I guess, on the planet. <laughs> because it's like, it's like a hundred times faster than the Venus flytrap even. So these are pretty oh my God. effective little hunters. Yeah. Okay. So. Pop quiz, what are the fastest hunters on the planet? Cheetahs? No. Lions? No. Raptors? Nope. Bladderworts? Swamp plants? Ah, we love an underdog, but you can call them with respect, Utricularia. And they look like swamp seaweed with little capsules along the bottom of their tenderly viney branches. And I looked up the specific physics on this and dinner gets suctioned in at a rate of zero to 60 miles per hour in one millisecond. That is almost 2,000 times faster than the world's fastest car. Swamp goblins. And via a 2011 paper called Ultra Fast Underwater Suction Traps, Little delicious wetland crustaceans get sucked into the space of the bladderwort death pockets with 100 times the Gs that a fighter pilot experiences, around 600 Gs. I myself have taken five Gs in a military centrifuge for a science shoot, and I thought I was dying. I was like, should have had a will before this. So I'm sorry, crustaceans, because that is 100 times worse. And also you do die and you do not have a legal will. But I looked up the work of the team at CSU Fresno that Halia mentioned, and I came across the 2021 paper, Complexity and Diversity of Motion Amplification and Control Strategies in Motile Carnivorous Plant Traps, which explained that plants have stiff cell walls, so they can't use proteins to contract themselves like animals do with muscles. And rather, most plant movement comes comes from changes of hydrostatic pressure, which is called turgor. And that's activated through these really energetically costly water displacements from another part of a plant. So hydraulics to use elastic energy just when it's needed. And in reading this paper on a Saturday afternoon, I also noticed that two of the authors on it were named Ulrika, Ulrika Mueller and Ulrika Bauer. Is that right? That's got to be wrong, or that must be weird for them. I'll email them and ask them if it's weird for them, 
And then later that day, I was delighted to find a note in my box from Dr. Mueller, who wrote, Hi, Allie Ward. Happy to share. Nope, not a typo. There really are two Ulricas. And by fluke, we both do biomechanics of carnivorous plants. And aside from Ulrika Bauer, I know of only one other Ulrika personally in my entire 56 years of life. Ulrika is a really rare name, so it does warp people's minds that we are really two people and it creates a lot of confusion. Uh, but Dr. Mueller said that she always knew of Dr. Bauer's work and they finally met at a symposium and they've been working together ever since. So when in doubt, hunt down a good story. When it comes to how you describe them, are you, mm-hmm. do scientists say that they are hunting, that they're predators? Like when does the nomenclature oh, yeah. work for plants? Yeah, I mean, I don't, in an academic sense, I, I don't anthropomorphize plants because I don't know what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. We definitely know that they feel pain. We've anesthetized plants <gasps> and been able to remove parts of them without any pain signals or pain reactions. And so they do respond in that way. Oh, my God. But, like, I don't know what they're thinking as far as, like, I'm going to get that little bug flying around or... You know, where's that fat little bee and eat them around for the season? So I don't attribute too much human behavior to them, but I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it. Does that freak you out ever <laughs> to think, like, if you anesthetize a plant, it won't react the same way? Does that ever mess with your whole, like, thoughts about the universe? <laughs> I think every, I think every time I, like, remember that I know that, because, uh, like, I don't know, I have a lot of shit in my brain about plants. Mm-hmm. And so every once in a while, like, I'll reread my notes. And I'm like, oh. And then, like, I kind of feel bad about, like, eating salad or something. Like, oh, did, they, did this hurt them? Wow. <laughs> Are you stepping on this grass? I don't know. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. What do you know about how they are, let's say, hunting or predating are they ever using certain scents or signals to advertise, like, come over here, come over here, I'm going to eat Yes. You. Yes, they are. That's primarily how they're luring insects in. So they produce what are called volatiles, which are just different aromas from all of their tissues. It really differs across all the different species. And there's like over 800 species of carnivorous plants. So they're all kind of doing it a little different. But a lot of the aromas that they exude from like the pictures are sweet, kind of earthy smells at the beginning of the season. The nectars are really sweet because they're luring in insects that are looking for food, right? For carbs, for amino acids, um, and proteins are really high-quality foods for insects. And so they have their nectaries that line the pitchers. Those are putting off a smell. The pitchers themselves are putting off a smell. And so those are bringing in the first insects of the season when, you know, when all the bugs are out, they're they're the first to fall in. And then as they've filled up on food, this is funny guess, as they fill up on food, they kind of stop exuding their own chemicals and they kind of like let the smell of the decay from like everything that's dying in them bring in other kinds of animals. So they're like, if you're into eating decaying flesh, like this is for you, come on over. So yes, they have a rim of delicious, sugary, sweet at the start of the season, and then toward the end, it becomes the odor of death. Kind of like a restaurant that has a great waffle brunch, but then at night turns into a goth fetish club. What are some of the weirdest things that they eat? Can you run me through some menu items that we'd be, Yeah, I mean, no pun intended, but boggled to hear about? <laughs> 
So their main prey are going to be like ants and house flies. Okay. The sticky ones love to get off of those fruit flies. Those are great. Any kind of fly paper. Carnivorous plant is good for those little tiny fruit flies. They'll also eat like moths and sometimes grasshoppers can chew their way out. That's not really big food. Needles will find their way in there. They're very like opportunistic. So it's like kind of whatever falls in that we're going to eat. In the tropics, the pitcher plants there grow up trees. They trail off of trees and then they have these like big pitchers that they that hang off of them, big old pots. And those fill with fluid. And a lot of things will come and check them out. And I've heard stories of like, birds getting stuck in there, <gasps> little baby like mice and like little small mammals, lizards, like literally anything that can fit in a trap, it can can get digested by that plant. <laughs> I ate the bones. Do they eat the bones? N- not that I, I don't know if they have the enzymes to digest bone, but they do have enzymes to digest chitin, which is what insects are made out of, but nothing for bone as far as I as far as far I know. Maybe we'll find something. Mm-hmm. All right. I looked into this for us, and I came across a pop science article titled, What's the biggest thing a carnivorous plant will eat? And should we humans be worried? Should humans be worried about carnivorous plants eating us in the middle of a global pandemic with ice shelves splintering into our boiling acidified oceans. And then I saw that the article was published in 2008, before yet another escalating war between superpowers and uh, predating the rise and the fall of pink pussy hat culture and the return of baggy jeans. Anyway, this 2008 article led me to the work of Dr. Alistair S. Robinson, who sounds dead, but he's a young guy studying pitcher plants who named one after Sir David Attenborough. And in a video, he talked about finding a rodent corpse inside a pitcher plant at the top of a remote mountain in the Philippines. Now, we were here approximately one month ago, and the shrew was intact, recently killed. And now all that is left is bones and some of the fur, which just goes to show how quickly digestion is taking place within the pitchers of this marvelous species. But it doesn't seem to be a common occurrence. And also, yes, David Attenborough got a pitcher plant named after him. And Obama has a bunch of species. Carmen Electra got a fly. Lady Gaga has a few, including a pretty cool aquatic mite. Greta Thunberg is a popular species honor recipient. Beyonce has a horsefly with a golden butt named after her. And Stephen Colbert begged on TV for someone to name some stuff after him. And scientists are like, sure, man. Also, I told you earlier I would spare you this research. And what I did was I lied. But the cool thing about that is when, with the tropical pitcher plants, they're called Nepenthes, when prey falls in, whether it's an insect or whether it's a tree shrew finding its way and defecating inside the pitcher, when anything enters the pitcher, there's mRNA in the pitcher tissues that gets right upregulated and it starts producing enzymes based on whatever is it, whatever it senses. So whether it's chitin or certain proteins or even ammonium, which I guess is found in some insects, it'll start producing enzymes to like custom break it down so that it can change depending on like what it is. Wow. So there's a lot of flexibility in these plants. It's really weird. And we really don't know a lot about that stuff. But that's kind of actually a newer area of, of study. Are there debates about the intelligence of plants, if they are sensing something and then reacting a certain way, mm-hmm. when do you say like that is intelligence? That's a, that's a really good question. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's all kind of how you want to define intelligence. They're definitely aware of their environment. They're definitely aware of the other plants that are around them and the other organisms that they're interacting with. So if you want to label that intelligence, that's, I don't know, I guess you can do that. Mm -hmm. It's not really something that I ponder too often myself, but uh, yeah. Someone's out there thinking about it. I mean, I'm I'm sure in the future we're going to think isn't it crazy that we used to debate and wonder if plants were intelligent? <laughs> oh and then God. we were like, wow, we were such fucking assholes to plants. Yeah. You know? like, they're like, of course we are. Like, have you seen us? Also worth noting, there is a field emerging called plant cognition. And one of the leading researchers in this, Dr. Monica Gagliano, defines it as the cognitive abilities of plants, including perception, learning processes, memory, and consciousness. And the emerging framework holds considerable implications for the way that we perceive plants as it redefines the traditionally held boundary between animals and plants. <gasps> like straight up salads or trauma. And I don't know what to do with that information. So how about we change the subject? Great. What about pooping? <laughs> do they ever poop or fart? <laughs> yeah. Remember, the first time I got this question, it was, <laughs> it was like a five-year-old. I was like doing this like school presentation, and it was like it was like kindergarten. I was playing with this little girl, super cool girl. She's like, "So these eat bugs?" And I'm like, "Yeah." She's like, "So do they poop?" And I'm like, "Huh, huh." Oh wait, that's like actually like a really good question. <laughs> I'm like, let me get back to you. I gotta like think about that. Um, anyways, it's like one of my favorite questions because it's. Uh, Glorious. Um, so they don't poop in the way that we think of poop. Mm-hmm. Usually what you're going to find, and again, this is based on the type of plant, they're capturing mechanisms and everything like that. If there's digestive enzymes available, that'll change what, what comes out. But a lot of, like for pitcher plants, for the pitcher plants that I work with, all of the bug stuff just stays in the old pitcher and it just decomposes slowly. And so they break it down as much as they can. They derive whatever nutrients they can. And then, like, the husks of the bugs just kind of, like, sit in there. And more insects come and eat whatever they can. And it just kind of becomes, like, a communal compost, which is good, <laughs> I guess. Feed the rest of the community. Other plants, like, if you get the fly trap plants, any of the butterworts, which are kind of, like, little succulent-looking rosette plants that are, that are sticky on top. When little flies stick to them, they'll just stay there. Like their little husk will just stay and the plant just absorbs like the gooeyness, I guess. Like any of those nutrients in the world, the rest just stays there. And then those flies will like die. Yeah, so they kind of just like leave them hanging out most of the time. This is a little, mm-hmm. it's just a little dark, I guess. Yeah. When <laughs> you think about it. I haven't really thought about it that way. As goth as gardening gets, <laughs> yeah. you know, like a. <laughs> Get more. It's like been so normalized for me. I'm like, oh no, I guess <laughs> little skeletons hanging out. It's weird. Um, yeah, yeah. So sometimes they just kind of leave it there. Can I ask you some mm-hmm. listener questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. But before your questions, let's scatter some money into the wind and blow it toward a cause of the ologist choosing. And Halia selected two actually great ones: the North American Saracenia Conservancy. Uh, nasaracenia.org, which is dedicated to preserving the natural habitats and genetic diversity of the genus Saracenia, 
those are pitcher plants, through protection, conservation, propagation, and restoration efforts. And kaulaakalana.org, which works with Native Hawaiian scientists and community members to restore traditional fish ponds on Oahu. And projects like this show that indigenous traditional knowledge provides relevant and effective tools to combat issues related to climate change, food scarcity, and habitat degradation. So those are two great causes and donations are made to them. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to sponsors of the show. What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day? Aura frames? I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle. And also, it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of 
timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18+, plus multivitamin, has these high-quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified, and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay. Let's digest your questions. A lot of you, including Slayer, Gustavo Discoteca, Bex Woodruff, Jesse Hurlbert, Diana Starasinic, Dean, Jason Krauss, Rochelle Williams, Annalisa Young, Quinn Newman, Michelle Mandula, Alia Myers, Ben W., Schmitty Thompson, all asked if carnivorous plants eat people. Earl of Gramlican was like, if you boop it, will you lose a finger? And Sarah Stala wrote in, do I need to be afraid? Very afraid? Okay. Amanda Spinoza mm-hmm. wants to know, could carnivorous plants theoretically mm-hmm. digest very small amounts of human meat? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They eat small mammals, so they could probably like oh. digest tip of your finger or something. Yeah, well, it's funny you should ask that because first time question asker, um, Alia Mako says, if one were to dangle a pinky finger into a pitcher plant for a few days to a week, would it start to digest said finger? No. I don't know. I mean, if you could, like, you could actually do that for a week, yeah, it would probably start working on some enzymes for that. Yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah, I'm not sure how long it's going to take. It takes a while, though. So it'd be like maybe two weeks. It'd be better if you okay. just, like, chop your little fingertip in. Mm. That'd, that'd be more effective. Over <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> time. And, and I put my hand in the slicer and it got caught because I wasn't paying attention. Next time you have a kitchen accident, mm-hmm. just do yeah. yourself a favor, drop yeah. it into a pitcher plant, yeah, you don't see what it. happens. <laughs> Would you like more details on this? Okay, so Barry Rice, the conservation director for the International Carnivorous Plant Society and the author of Growing Carnivorous Plants, notes that digesting a mammal takes a while and it could rot the plant. But Dr. Rice answered 
when opportunity knocked in the form of a bad case of athlete's foot he got from his karate dojo. And he writes on his website that he got treatment, but during his foot's flaky healing period, he wrote, quote, if skin were peeling off my feet like shingles from an old barn in a hurricane, ever enterprising, I figured, hey, why waste all these skin hunks? Hunks! Oh, Dr. Barry Rice. So naturally, he fed some of his own foot jerky to some lobes of Venus flytrap alongside an earwig appetizer for some movement and pizzazz. And a week later, when the lobes yawned open, he discovered, yes, the plant ate his dried foot. And I will put a link to the photo documentation from his website. I'll link that on my website. You don't have to click it, okay? You don't have to click it. You might want to, but you don't have to. Also, once I did one of those baby foot peels in the early pandemic when I was like, no one's going to see me for a while, and it is truly revolting, and my dog ate a foot flake of mine, and my first thought was like, hmm, she's made out of me now. Gross. I love it. And also, Mark Eyre, you can tell your lovely wife now that it would take a lot of dedication and coaxing and foot issues to even have a carnivorous plant attempt to digest a small bit of you. So fear not. Do not fear these swampy beauties. And just like our own simmering guts, some meat plants rely on a partnership with microbes to help digest their victims. But could you digest a digesting plant? Reb Sean Killed, first-time question asker Lori and Tom Astle, Alyssa Williams-Pierce and Jody Pierce all had questions about pitcher plants. And what's going on with that liquid? Hunter Momberger, first-time question asker also, asked, uh, are there any practical applications for the slurry inside a pitcher plant? Can you drink that? So there are some medicines that have been derived from contents within pitchers and the pitcher tissues themselves. They have a lot of like antifungal, antimicrobial properties. I've heard that there's some indigenous traditions in tropical regions of using the fluid for like different maladies, for stomach upsets, for eye infections. Yeah, there are some medicinal properties of these plants. Okay, I looked into this a little, and indigenous uses of pitcher plants include everything from using the leaf as a vessel and the roots to treat smallpox and lung illnesses. The leaves were used as a tea to treat fevers, kidney issues, and during childbirth. And there was a small 2012 study that seemed to suggest that Saracenia extract could inhibit viral replication and potentially be active against pox viruses and Epstein-Barr. However, Sarah L., those claims about venous flytraps curing cancer, eh, jury's still out on that research. But Bingus, a.k.a. Sarah Payne, and first-time question asker Daryl Wallach, who wondered about medicinal breakthroughs, perhaps one day in the future they'll do more research and carnivorous plants will be our new heroes. But should you be considering them people, we wonder? Jess P., who's also a first-time question asker, wanted to know about venous flytraps and said, why do we ascribe personalities to venous flytraps? Is it because they seem animal-like because they have reflexes and chompers? But I wanted to ask about those like reflexes, what causes them to close? And Jess asked also, did I kill my venous flytrap by (laughs) sticking a chopstick on its little feelers to trick it into closing? (laughs) And as someone who myself has killed a Venus flytrap from just making it perform too much like a dance mom, like what, how is it closing and how damaging is that? Okay. Don't worry. I've killed a bunch myself. So you guys are stuck in that. So in the mouth of the, of the Venus flytrap, you'll see that there's 
two little hairs on each side of the baby, right? There's two little the trigger hairs. And usually where these plants are grown, they're just kind of like laying out with their mouths open in the nice sun. And they're luring in bugs with their smells and stuff. And the point of these trigger hairs is that when a bug comes by, it'll hit a hair. But it needs to hit a second hair within 10 seconds, I believe. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. there's like an actual number. It's like 10 to 20 seconds. It has to hit the other hair, and then it'll start closing. Oh, wow. That's how it avoids closing on accident and wasting energy. Because every time it closes, there's an electrical impulse that actually snaps the, the leaves together. And so it, it does require energy for it to move um, in quite a bit. And each leaf can open and close, I believe, three to five times before it's going to die. And it can actually do that. And it does that normally. So, like, it's not your fault if you're doing that for fun. But, like, it can eat, like, three to five meals, essentially, also. It can eat that many times. And then that leaf is done with its job. And it's going to put up new traps. And, and it'll just keep going. So that's kind of part of a normal life cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reason why you don't want to trigger them without feeding them is because they're not like getting any energy back from closing. They're taking all their energy to keep going. It's not horrible if you trigger them, you know, once or twice or something like that, but like give them a treat or something on the mm-hmm. third time, you know, they like flies, they like grasshoppers and stuff like that. But yeah, so each, each leaf will eventually die. It's supposed to, they are just leaves. That's, this is a leaf aspect of the plant itself mm-hmm. and leaves, you know, have a shorter lifespan and they put new ones throughout the season. That's pretty normal for most plants. Mm. So to patrons Flaws Neve, Alice Rubin, Jamie Kishimoto, CJ Luck, Nikki, aka Dr. Headbutt, who asked, is it unethical to poke a Venus flytrap to make it close? Just pay it for the performance. And if a leaf dies, that's okay. Now, what if you have or are interested in adopting a carnivorous plant? Like patrons Dana Hiet, Addie Capello, Ashley Oakley, Hannah Leffler, Ellen Kainer, Danielle Edgar, Nina Eve Z, Bex Woodruff, Jen Squirrel Alvarez, Alicia Henning, and Annika's cat Aria. They asked, do they make good pets? And Jessica Randolph notes, I've seen them at stores and I'm tempted, but I don't want to encourage a bad industry. What about keeping them as pets? Should they be left in the wild or what do you think about that? Well, we should definitely not be poaching wild plants ever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so make sure that where you're getting plants from is an ethical source because poaching is kind of a problem in the carnivorous plant hobby. Um, because they grow wild on like the roadsides in Florida and people don't have a lot of, you know, they don't like value their existence <laughs> and so they're like regularly just kind of like disturbed and mowed and stuff like that so people assume that they don't have a lot of you know importance in the, in the ecosystem or anything like that so again you definitely want to find your plants from an established breeder there's nurseries across the country that sell really good quality plants so i recommend visiting one of them there's a bunch of online shops that you can buy carnivorous plants from so yeah own carnivorous plants, give them a nice sunny window to live in, give them good rainwater, distilled water, you can put your hands on it to keep them, you know, nutrient deficient so that they keep looking for bugs. Oh. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. If you give them too many nutrients, they'll stop being carnivorous, a lot of them. They'll just like not produce traps. They'll still produce leaves so that it can photosynthesize, but they won't produce any traps because they don't need to. 
So do we have a lot of nutrients in tap water? Do we have uh, enough minerals? Yeah. So if you look at your local water sources, you have to go to your local water board. You usually have a website. You can look at where your water is coming from and what the TDS is, which is total total dissolved solids. And you want your TDS for carnivorous plants to be below 100. Ideally, that's where you want it. So pretty pure water. Catch your rainwater if you can. You can also buy distilled water or reverse osmosis water if you have like an auto system or water purifier at home. There's lots of cheap ways to do it. So yeah, you want to maintain this nutrient efficient environment for them so that they can keep being cool little bug eaters. So keep them a little hungry and look for a reputable dealer. California carnivores and predatory plants are both Halia approved and you can check botany forums for more local suggestions. And it's not all Venus flytraps and showy pitcher plants. What about a sticky little guy that can grab its prey and put it in a sleeper hold? On your windowsill, the drama. Don't sleep on sundews, beginners. You can try a sundew. Sundews are really great if you've got a nice sunny window. They'll catch all the little fruit flies that you might get in your house. These flytraps, too, are pretty easy plants to keep. But again, you just need like the right amount of light. It's just finding like, the right spot in the house. So you've got a nice sunny spot, but I'd start out with a sundew. Get the hang mm-hmm. of it first. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ashley Oki had a better question than I did in terms of carnivorous mm-hmm. plants in the media. Mm-hmm. Wanted to know if you have thoughts on Mario Kart specifically. Oh. <laughs> the Is little, there a carnivorous plant in it? Yeah, those like little ones that come up from the pipes, like when Mario. So they are actually based on a combination of a certain flesh-eating plant and fish. Like little Venus flytrap ones with the little mouths. Yeah, those are cute. Mm-hmm. Those are probably one of my favorite little monsters that pop out. Are there any others that are in the media that you roll your eyes at or you're like hey good job um no i think i just kind of get tired of seeing like the venus flytrap thing because there's so (laughs) much diversity like there's so many really cool plants out there that we could be representing in the media and i'm like come on guys like let's get creative or something (laughs) and so that'd be nice to see this more more diversity you know what shout out to pokemon for modeling the character Victory Bell, a fanged pitcher plant after Nepenthes bicalcerata, the common name, the fanged pitcher plant. We need more of this in media. So thank you. You need producers to come and find you and say, we need I our know. carnivorous plant expert. Like, as soft ass show with these weird plants. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Bog Bitch. And <laughs> oh, I love it. Definitely. I, we're gonna. We might have to sell sell a show like this. Yeah, I imagine like when it comes to if you had to do a like a a graph of the distribution of carnivorous plant tattoos, you mm-hmm. would find a lot of Venus flytraps and not as many sundews or pitcher plants, right? Probably. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. Although I don't know, I feel like a lot of people that I've seen get carnivorous plant tattoos are like deep into the hobby. And so <laughs> you might see like a lot of variety on their arms or like something like really niche or something like that. Like, oh, is that like a Ordula or something? Or is that a Joseph Island? <laughs> like weird stuff that you can't find at the stores. You're like, oh, okay. It's interesting. Rory Dula, I think, side note, is a plant that grows on the Cape of South Africa and it makes a sticky resin that traps bugs. But wait, it can't digest the bugs. But it has a business deal with the assassin bug, which can walk all over the resin unharmed and eat the bugs, and then shits on the plant's face, which it loves. Not to anthropomorphize too much. Also, we had some technical difficulties again and got momentarily disconnected, during which time I did image search tattoos. 
and I did Google carnivorous plant tattoo. Turns out you were so on point and you're right. There's a ton of like pitcher plants. There's a ton of sundews. Like mm-hmm. there is good biodiversity when it comes to mm-hmm. um, carnivorous plant tattoos. So good call. <laughs> There's even one with a shrew next to it. And that, that shrew's like, God, I got to take a dump. And uh, <laughs> there it goes. It's yeah, like it's it. like a New Yorker looking for a Starbucks. And I appreciate <laughs> that. I also want to ask you about nature's toilets because yeah. nano naturalists Derek Wallach, Derek Allen, Megan Tripney, uh, in Nano Naturalist words, I need to know more about the carnivorous plants that animals use as toilets. Yes. Shrews, apparently, shrew potties. What's going on? Yes, there's a plant called Nepenthes loei. It's found mm-hmm. in, uh, I don't know, I forget which, Borneo or Sumatra, one of those in Indonesia. Oh, it's from Borneo. Okay, so these plants are have these big old tubby, pictures and this one in particular its lid is held open <gasps> and on the lid it accumulates like this really thick layer of sugar like it's white <gasps> like you could scrape it off and eat it yourself it looks like little patched snow it's like so thick and tree shrews that are native to that area know to come to these plants and they sit with their little behinds hanging over the pitcher that's filled with fluid and they have this awful little snack of this high, you know, quality, high energy food and they defecate into the pitcher. And <laughs> that is like the primary food source for that pitcher. For a long time, people didn't know that they, if they were like even deriving any nutrients from it because they're like, well, maybe it's just an accident. But no, it's like a significant amount of energy comes from the crap. And I think that's <laughs> awesome. And there's another, oh my God. there's another species that's long and tubular, but this one houses bats. Oh. And because it's nice and long, the bats can come in. They hang from the bottom of the, of the lid into the pitcher and they roost there overnight and they're pooping into the pitcher. <gasps> so while they're taking a snooze, the pitcher is getting food and then they poop out. And, um, Pretty cool. So, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. We had a couple patrons, Sammy Baker and Metatron and Maui, both asked about that, about bats in particular. Yeah. But it seems like the the absolute grossest vending machine ever. <laughs> you went to a vending machine. It's like, listen, you take a dump, some sun chips are going to come out. You're like, sounds good to me. So no gross. So G. I love it's just like tra- we have a transactional relationship. Yeah. Very I, I harvest your turds. Mm-hmm. You get a snack. Mm-hmm. Um, do, what about any myths that you would like to step up on a platform? Use Ooh. this as a soapbox. Ooh. Get huh. your megaphone out. Yeah, right. um, Anything to bust? Okay. There's always a question. I feel like in general, there's like no concern about the flowers of these plants, which I have like a special love for the flowers. Of carnivorous plants because they're beautiful, they're like gorgeous. And there's a lot of ideas that if you cut off flowers, that it's going to benefit the plant, or if you leave the flowers, it's going to kill the plant because it doesn't have enough energy now or whatever. And I just want to say right now that you should leave your flowers on your plants. Mm. The plant has already requisitioned resources for those flowers, and it's done. As soon as that flower pops up, it's done. So just leave it, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, and keep feeding your plant because 
then it'll just pop up more flowers and keep enjoying it. It's part of it. And so, oh. Yeah, enjoy those flowers. What about the hardest thing mm-hmm. about carnivorous plants? About your job? Mm-hmm. About dead insects? <laughs> like, what's difficult about mm-hmm. getting your master's and, oh, you know, perhaps your PhD next? And then. I think the hardest part about getting a master's in general is that you're wearing a lot of hats and that's mm. hard to do. You're working, you're doing your research, you're taking classes. That juggling the workload can be a lot. And then you also don't have a lot of time in the field. You go put your experiment out, you collect everything, and then like you're back in the lab inside crunching numbers. So like that can mm. be like the less fun part of it when like because most of us got into this work because we like to be outside with plants mm-hmm. and then you get stuck inside doing like the important <laughs> part of science which is like data <laughs> yeah um so that's probably the hardest part that makes sense what about your what about your favorite part or um something you didn't expect to love so much i really appreciated the community that i've found here at tcu within the carnivorous plant community i have so many cool friends and so i think just like growing plants getting out in nature you meet so many cool people and we're all from different walks of life i've met a lot of people who are like engineers but they grow these plants inside i've met researchers and explorers and all these like really cool people and so i think that's a a great Part of it. That's what I love about science is like the collaboration aspect of it. You get to like nerd out with people all the time about like your favorite nerd shit. And yeah, mm-hmm. probably the best part. Do you have a lot of people who text you and ask, I killed my Venus uh, uh-huh. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely that friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also um, places where people can follow you or anything you want to plug. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Haleopedia on both of those platforms. Nothing to plug. Um, please pay attention to your local wetlands and plant native plants in New York. Amazing. Lots more native habitat back after all of the development we've done over the last 500 years. So please do your part. You can have a little pot of, you know, whatever wildflower you love that will make such a difference just creating that habitat thank you so much for doing this it was nice talking to you keep up the great work and let me know how your bog branding is going all right thanks (laughs) (laughs) so ask smart plant people human questions and plant natives if you can i'm in la and the last few months we've been rewilding this grassy hillside uh in the backyard it's been covered with invasive weeds for years but we've totally redone it with native plants. And it's just so cool to see sages and coyote brush growing and blue dick. It's a plant and poppies are finally sprouting. And so big thanks to my friend David Newsom of Wild Yard Projects for his work in this area. And I will link Wild Yard's project on my website too. More links will be up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash carnivorous phytobiology, which will be linked in the show notes as well, alongside the two causes that we donated to. Thank you so much, Aaron Talbert, who admins the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thank you to Shannon and Bonnie of the You Are That podcast for helping out as well. Thank you, Susan Hale, for handling merch and quizzes and so much else. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, who wrangles schedules. 
and so much else. Emily White of The Wordery makes our professional transcripts and Caleb Patton bleeps them. Those are available for free at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. Uh, if there was a sponsor that you need a link or a code for, that's on my website as well. Thank you, Kelly Dwyer, for making my website. She can make yours too. Every few weeks, we put out a classic ologies episode that has been whittled down and defilthed. It's safe for kids. They are called smologies. Thank you to Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas for those. Those are linked to my website as well. And to Stephen Ray Morris for the assist. And huge thanks to the gooey slurry of my heart, lead editor, Jarrett Sleeper of MindJam Media for putting all the pieces together each week. Nick Thorburn made the theme music. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this week's secret is a little raw. I might have COVID. Either that or I'm fighting it off. Here's the deal. I went to a birthday party on Thursday. Didn't know it was going to be so indoors at a restaurant. And I was like, oh, no, BA2, what do I do? And our dear friend whose birthday it was, was running a couple hours late because he had to work late. So we were just kind of hanging out for him for a while. Anyway, I found out my friend we were sitting next to has COVID today. So I am feeling like I'm fighting something off. Rapid test said negative, but hmm going to be doing a PCR tomorrow, but I did have to cancel a trip up to help my dad go to the hospital because of it. Not happy about that. Be careful, you know, just be careful. And you can still wear a mask. doesn't matter if anyone makes fun of you for it. Keep it on your face. Okay, bye-bye. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.